This is uh, week two of our new series, uh, Sure-Footed Faith, uh, which is a study in the epistle of 2 Peter. So you can open your Bible to 2 Peter if you'd like there. Um, this is a, 2 Peter is a very short book of the Bible. It's focused on very practical topics relating to Christian living. It's only three chapters long. Uh, the first chapter is all about how to grow in spiritual maturity. And the second chapter is focused on a warning about people who claim to be Christian teachers and preachers, but are actually teaching a distorted view of God and what it means to follow Jesus. And then the last chapter is about the coming return of Jesus and how our belief in Christ's return should change the way that we live now. And as part of this series, we are assigning homework each week. For those of you who really uh, have that ambition to get the most you can out of the, the study of God's Word and the most you can out of the messages here on Sunday mornings, uh, we're giving you homework. You'll find it on the back of your bulletin. Uh, it's, uh, it's there at the bottom of the page on the back of your bulletin. And you'll also see some of it coming up on our social media accounts. So if you are uh, not yet following us on Facebook and Instagram, get on there so you can see some of that homework stuff. And uh, one of the things we're encouraging you all to do as part of the homework, is to read the entire book of 2 Peter each week. And as I mentioned, it's a short book. It's actually really easy to read. It's only about three pages. It took me, uh, I timed myself this week, it took less than 10 minutes to read the entire book of 2 Peter. So uh, I encourage you to all be reading it every week as we're going through this study. So the part of the book that we're studying this morning is the first four verses of 2 Peter. Uh, in these verses, several key ideas are introduced that set the tone for the rest of the book. And as I said, this chapter is mostly about growing in spiritual maturity. And the climax of, of this week's passage is in verse 4, where it says uh, that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So you see, each one of us, as people created in the image of God, have the ability to be like God or to imitate God in many uh, ways. And that is what it means to participate in the divine nature. Our nature can become like God's nature in uh, a variety of ways. But another part of our lives is in the corruption that is caused by our evil desires. See, our lives are a combination of the divine nature and the corruption in the world. But we can shift the balance uh, in our lives. We can become more like God and less corrupt. This is possible because of the big tagline from verse 3. That This is the one that I want you all to be saying to one another and discussing and stuff as you go out today. Uh, the line is, we have been given everything we need for a godly life. But now, let's, uh, let's dive into the text from the beginning, and we'll be getting to those big emphases uh, in a few minutes here. So the letter begins, as uh, most ancient letters did, by identifying who is the writer of the letter, and then identifying who he is writing to. Uh, the writer identifies himself as Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the Peter who is a prominent figure from the gospel stories about Jesus' ministry. 
He was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose and taught throughout those three years of, of, uh, of Jesus' uh, public ministry. And, uh, and these guys were also later named apostles. And these apostles were the foundational leaders of the church. And, uh, and Peter was one of the key leaders of the leaders. Um, he, uh, when you read the book of Acts, which tells us the, uh, the stories of the early history of the Christian church, uh, Peter plays a key role in that whole thing. And we have two letters that he wrote preserved for us in the Bible. We call them 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Uh, the guys who compiled the Bible weren't very creative with how they came up with those things, so that is just 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Anyway, Peter lists two titles for himself here in the beginning of this letter. Uh, of course, one is Apostle of Jesus Christ, which emphasizes his authority and his qualification to teach the truth about Jesus uh, to uh, the, the readers of this letter. And the second title that he gives himself is Servant. Or the word in the original language could also mean slave. Uh, Peter's title that he proudly claims is that he is a servant or a slave of Jesus. You see, to be a servant of Jesus, that is a title worth aspiring to. That's what I want to be. To serve Jesus and to serve others is a great Christian ambition. And Peter puts that as part of his qualifications. Instead of calling himself Peter the Great or Peter the, 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 the friend of Jesus, he says, no, I'm Peter the servant. Because true Christian leaders are servants. And Peter had taken to heart what he heard Jesus teach him, which was, uh, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus' typical way of referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So, Peter identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. Now, uh, in many biblical letters, the recipients are named by their location. Uh, in 1 Peter, that's how he does it. He talks about the places where the people are that he's writing to. Uh, but here, the people that Peter is writing to are described theologically. Um, when we read the rest of the letter, we can, we can see that Peter does have in mind a very specific group of people. He's not just writing generally to all Christians that can be described like this. But he has a purpose here beyond just identifying, here's who I'm writing to. He's trying to say something theological and meaningful with the way he identifies his readers. He says that they are people who have received a faith as precious as ours. As precious as ours. And so there Peter is making a distinction between the readers and his own group. You have a faith just as precious as our faith, he says. So uh, who is he talking about there? Who's the, the kind of you and us that Peter has in mind? He doesn't really spell it out for us here, but there are at least two ways of understanding this that both have something to teach us here. Uh, historically, the main idea here that Peter is writing is that Peter is writing to uh, a mainly Gentile group of churches, right? Um, 
They were mainly not Jews. There was a few Jews uh, in the church, but it was mainly not Jews um, who uh, he's writing to. But Peter himself, of course, along with all the other disciples and Jesus, were all Jewish. And of course, uh, to many of us, that's kind of, okay, yeah, big deal. We have just as much, our faith is just as good as Jewish faith, of course. But man, historically, and in the early days of the church, that was a huge theological debate about whether or not uh, a a non-Jew who wanted to follow Jesus needed to uh, become like a Jew and follow all the laws of the Old Testament and follow those rules and convert to Judaism, and then you can also follow Jesus. But Peter says, no, that's not necessary. You have been given a faith just as precious as the faith that we have been given. That is, the Gentiles' faith is just as legit as the Jewish faith. And for us today, even though we we don't see that uh, issue as big, there's still some pretty important implications for it. First of all, it means that those of us who are not part of the chosen people of God by birth and are not descendants of the great Old Testament patriarchs, we can still read the Old Testament and legitimately apply it to ourselves because our faith is just uh, the same as the faith of the Jewish people. The promises of the Jewish scriptures really do apply to those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And we don't need to convert to Judaism or follow the Jewish laws of the Sabbath and all these things and kosher laws in order to be acceptable to God. We are saved by faith in Jesus, just like Jewish Christians are saved by faith in Jesus. The Bible uh, talks about this in the book of Romans where uh, Paul says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So the second um, you and us that is significant in Peter's uh, statement here that uh, his readers have a faith just as precious Um, is that Peter is an apostle. He is one of the inner circle key early leaders of the church. He was especially commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. But he is saying here that we have received a faith that is on the same level, is just as precious as the faith of of the original 12 apostles. Yeah, it would be cool to have lived back then and to hear Jesus teach and see him do miracles and to look Jesus right in the eye. Uh, It would have been awesome to have Jesus himself give us the Great Commission face to face. But our relationship with God is just as precious, just as powerful as theirs. We too are privileged. We have been chosen by God to be recipients of the gift of faith. And we should never feel like we are at a disadvantage because we're not Jewish or because we're not, uh, we didn't live back then and we're separated from it all by all this time. This applies to us on a personal level. Even uh, when when you... Look at it in your own life. 
no one should feel like their background, their family, or their lack of church experience, or however it was, makes them somehow less than those who grew up in the church, been in, you know, had godly parents going back two or three generations and all these things. Those are all great things, but God has given you a faith just as precious as anyone's faith. Next verse, uh, he uh, is still part of this introduction formula of the letter. Verse 2 says, uh, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, because we have received this great faith, grace and peace can be ours in abundance. The grace of God that is that kindness that gives us what we need despite our undeserving. We are sinful people. We don't deserve good things from God. And yet, He is willing to give us grace in abundance and peace, which doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to be calm and easy in our lives, right? God promises us peace, but He doesn't promise us no worries. It means that even when things are a little bit crazy, even when we have problems, we can have peace in the midst of it. Our faith in God to handle all of our problems can give us that confidence to roll with the trials of life and have peace beyond our circumstances. So how do we experience more of that grace and peace? This verse says that it comes through the knowledge of God. Here's how it works. The more we know God, the more we can trust Him to give us grace in all circumstances. And the more we trust Him, the more we can have peace. If we don't know God, or if we only know a little bit about God, it is hard for us to have abundant grace and peace in our lives. But the more we have come to know him and we know the stories of the Bible and we've experienced things with him and we've talked to other Christians who've told us how God has worked in their lives and we know God, we learn that we can trust him and that even when things are bad, we can have peace in the midst of it. So Peter is encouraging us to get to know God so that we can experience this kind of life. He explains this further in the next verses. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And we're going to come back to that and talk about it a fair bit in a minute. But, uh, but first notice that it is, again, through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. God has provided everything we need for a life full of grace and peace, a godly life, through our knowledge of Him. When we know God and we know His provisions to flow through us. So Peter is really emphasizing the importance here of having accurate knowledge of God. And if you've read the, rest, uh, the other parts of the letter, you know why this was so important. The people who he is writing to have been exposed to this, uh, these false teachers, false prophets they're called, who are uh, teaching them 
incorrect things about God. These are people who are, are, are uh, leading the people astray by teaching them falsehoods. They're people who, uh, and the people that follow them and these teachers themselves do not know God. They claim to know God, but they do not. Chapter 2 is all about those false teachers, and we're going to have a sermon on that chapter in a couple of weeks here. But um, here's a quick preview of what he uh, says about them. He says, By appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. So here's what I want to emphasize about uh, those false teachers for now uh, until we get to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, Not all who claim to be spiritual teachers are teaching the truth about God. Not all who claim to be Christian teachers are teaching the truth about God. There are a lot of false and harmful religious beliefs circulating in the world, just like there were back centuries ago when Peter first wrote this. It is the person who knows God who experiences the great things that Peter has just been describing, not the person who thinks he knows God and is actually being deceived by false teachers, and not the person who hasn't put in the effort to learn anything about God. It's the person who knows God. So more on these false teachers and how we can learn to avoid them will, will, will come uh, soon. But, but one more thing I want to mention here before we move on to some other key points in the text. I want to mention the next sermon series that we're going to be launching in the fall. Uh, that sermon series is going to be called The God Who Is There. And in that series, we're going to be uh, going through uh, spending a couple of months studying truths about God as they are revealed to us in the stories of the Bible. Uh, It's going to be a great uh, series. It's going to launch in about a month. So look forward to that and learning uh, a lot of things from the Bible about uh, who God is and getting to know God some more in that series. Now, there's uh, two ideas in this verse that I want to spend a little more time on here. The first one is that God has given us everything that we need. There is nothing that you need to live a godly life that God has not provided. That's a big big deal. So what are the implications of that? Uh, First, it is possible for you to live a godly life. Don't listen to your insecurities and your self-doubts that tell you that you cannot do it that you're too weak, too sinful, not good enough. God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. Um, I was at the uh, Global Leadership Summit on Thursday and Friday. A lot of you were there with us, a great time. One of the speakers on uh, Thursday morning uh, was talking about this very thing, and uh, he even quoted this verse when he was talking about it. And, uh, And he said, he said, Don't listen to the negative thoughts in your head! You have what it takes. He was a little more excited preacher than me. Uh, I don't usually talk like that, but this guy was uh, a little more of a yeller. (laughs) Anyway, don't listen to those negative thoughts in your head. You have what it takes. 
don't be discouraged. You have been given what you need. You are not missing any key resources. Now, I want to uh, illustrate that with a, a little story here. How many of you have ever done repairs on your own cars? Uh, you know, occasionally you do your own little car repairs. I've, I've done a few simple repairs and maintenance jobs. And one of the things that I've, uh, I've learned is that before you start, you need to make sure that you have all the tools and parts that you're going to need to do your job. Because it's super annoying when you're in the middle of the job and you realize, oh, I need that uh, wrench that I don't have, or I need a certain tool or a part that I don't have. So one of the jobs that I know how to do that I've done a few times is changing the brake pads when they get worn down. Right? So uh, one of the things you have to do when, uh, to do that job is you have to have a big uh, C-clamp because uh, as the pads wear down, they get much thinner than they were at the beginning and your, your brakes adjust in so that, uh, so that they tighten up and tighten up. Well, then when you get the new pads, they're like uh, probably a half an inch thicker between the two of them than the old worn out pads were. Well, there's no space for them in there because the machine has, has gone down. So once you get your pads off, you have to have one of these things. It's a C-clamp. And, uh, and the screw on here is what is going to push back the cylinder and push that uh, brake fluid back up into the master cylinder so that it widens back out the caliper and you can fit the new brake pads in there, right? Well, if you don't have one of these, um, you are not going to be able to do this job by just like getting in there with a big pair of pliers and trying to squeeze it or, or by trying to pry it back with a screwdriver or something. You can't do it. Um, without a clamp like this. Um, and I found that out when I uh, didn't have a clamp like this and was trying to do my brake pads. and I was, oh, So I had to go to the store in the middle of the job and go down to the hardware store and buy a, a clamp so that I could get that thing squeezed back and get my pads in there. So what's the, what's the point? The point is that God has provided us with a clamp and everything else that you need to do the job. We are not going to try our best to live a godly life and find out that we are missing a key thing, that we just don't have the resources to make it work. Because God has given us everything that we need. Now here's another point from this. There are things that we need in order to live a godly life. If you don't have these things, it is not going to work. Or if you have the right tool, but you just don't use it, and you try to just use your hands to squeeze back the cylinder or whatever, you're going to fail. There are things that God has provided that we need in order to live a godly life. What things? Well, that was one of the homework questions that we uh, asked for last, it was on last week's bulletin to think about for this week, and it also went out on the uh, Facebook page there, and people, uh, people wrote some answers to that. And, uh, and I appreciated the dis bit of a discussion that was going in there. Uh, they had some pretty good ideas about what kinds of things God has provided that we need. And you all should participate in that next time. We'll be more of that uh, in the coming weeks. But one of the people commented about prayer, thanksgiving, and community. Another wrote about the importance of God's word, the Bible. Another person mentioned the importance of the Holy Spirit living inside us. 
And those are all really important things that we need uh, in order for us to grow in spiritual maturity, in order to get the job done and to live a godly life. Um, and there are a lot of things that God has given us, but I, I want to focus on two, of, two, two fairly big things this morning that overlap somewhat with what uh, people said on the, on the, in the discussion. But uh, the first one is spiritual gifts. So if you ask, what has God given us to help us to grow? Well, he's given us gifts. He's given us spiritual gifts. And, uh, and, and here's what the Bible says about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. It says, there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now we're not gonna uh, explain all this about spiritual gifts right here, but uh, you can go back and find a sermon from a few weeks back that we did talk about this, back in our First Corinthians series. Anyway, um, we, uh, why did God give us these spiritual gifts? Why did he give us these unique abilities um, to use uh, for him? Was it so that we could each use our spiritual gift to grow ourselves up in spiritual life? No. Our spiritual gifts are given for the common good. That is, our spiritual gifts are for us to use to serve other people. So when I say there's a tool that you need in order to grow uh, in your spiritual life, there's something that God has given us that we need. You don't need your own gift. I need your gift. I don't need my own gift. I need your gift. And we both need someone else's gift and, and the rest. These are gifts that are given to help one another. So what that means, uh, it's, it's, it, let, me, let me read this part that's described, where it's described some more in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. He, said, he describes the, the church as a body. And here's what he says about it. He says, now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The point here is to emphasize that we are all interdependent on one another. Uh, one of us has one ability, one of us has another ability, but... None of us are able to function by ourselves. We need one another. You need community in order to live a godly life. You need to be involved in the life of the church. You need to have real relationships with other Christians so that they can speak into your life and so that you can speak into their lives. And of course, the power of Christian community goes way beyond the exercise of spiritual gifts. There's many great benefits of being in community and being part of a good church. And being part of the community means more than just attending services most weeks. That's a good first step to being part of the church, but it means finding a place to serve in the church. 
It means being in real relationships with people from the church. Maybe joining a journey group so that you can really get to know people and discuss spiritual things together. It means praying for our church, praying for one another in the church, giving to the work of the church. Jesus is building his church so that we can be part of it and we can grow up in it. Another resource that God has given us that I want to take a moment on here is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. A few months ago, we did a whole series on the fruit of the Spirit and how God is working to transform us from the inside out to be more like Him. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit works in us to produce, uh, let's see if you guys can say these with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we cooperate uh, with His leading, God will grow us in these characteristics. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life is a resource that we need in order to live a godly life. You won't be a godly person without it. But it is available to you. You have the tools. God has provided you with everything you need. Now let's take just a moment here to clarify what we mean by a godly life. What does a godly life look like? Well, it's a life that reflects the image of God. It is a life in which the character of God is on display. We are called to be imitators of God, and the more we do that, the more we are living godly lives. One of the best descriptions in the Bible for godly living is that list of the fruits of the Spirit that we just did. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we live like that and we uh, display those characteristics, we are living a godly life. And of course, there are also other attributes of God not on that list that we are called to imitate, like His generosity, His mercy, His grace, His compassion. A godly life cares about the things that God cares about. The heart of a godly man or woman is broken by the things that break the heart of God. Does all that describe you? It can. It can because God has given us everything we need for a godly life. That means that we shouldn't feel like it is impossible to live a life that is characterized by godliness. Of course, we won't live out any of these things perfectly, but just because perfection is beyond us, that does not mean that successful godly living is beyond us. Quite the opposite. It is possible for you to live a life that in general reflects the character of God. That stubborn sin that you struggle with, it can be beaten. Sinless perfection is beyond us, but a life that is characterized by victory over temptations is within our reach because God has given us everything we need for godly living. Godly living, of course, uh, includes a lot more than just removing sinful habits from our lives. 
uh, our goal is not a blank slate where we do nothing wrong, and we, but we also do nothing right. Our goal is to really live a godly life where we are, uh, a godly life is, is, is a life that is in service of the mission of God. Do you think that you can't do very much for God? God has given you everything you need to live a godly life and to play the part that he has chosen for you to play. You have the resources that you need to be a useful servant of the Lord. You can be like Peter and claim the title servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do have what it takes to make an impact for God because God has provided you with what you need to do what he has called you to do. He has given you everything you need for a godly life. The last verse that we're going to look at today restates the same idea of our ability with God's help to live a life that reflects the image of God. So here it is. He says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See, through all these things that we've been talking about, God, that God has given us, we can participate in the divine nature. Now, that's a very unusual way of putting it. The Bible doesn't use that kind of language very often to participate in the divine nature. It sounds kind of uh, uh, mystical or something. But um, probably Peter is using wording here in order to counter similar wording that was being used by the false teachers. But, uh, but Peter... Uh, says it like this, in order to get this idea across. We are able to be like God. Our nature can be like His nature. Our character can be like His character. Of course, we're not going to be the same as God. Our nature won't be the same as God's nature. Our character won't be the same as God's character. But we can be like Him in many ways, and we can reflect his image. He has made us in the image of God, and we can reflect that image. And we can bring glory to God in ways that nothing else in all creation can do. We can participate in the divine nature. Through all these things that we just talked about, including the Holy Spirit working within us, we can be imitators of God. And the verse describes the flip side of that, which is that uh, as we become more like God, we escape from the corruption in the world that is caused by evil desires. Do we escape it totally? Not until the next life. Uh, but here's what Peter is saying. He's saying our lives are a combination of the divine nature and the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. When we start out in the Christian life, we might be like a 10-90 split. 10% of us is like the divine nature, and 90% of us is still held by our evil desires. But it doesn't have to stay that way. God has given us everything we need for godly living. And with God's help, we can shift the balance. 
we can become more and more a reflection of the divine nature and less and less a slave to our evil desires. And that is, uh, leads us right to the point that Pastor Mike talked about last week where he, he read these verses. He said, For this very reason, all these things we've just talked about, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. What's the effort that you need to make? What is your next step? What is that chain of events there that he talks about? He doesn't say do all these things at once. <laughs> he wants us to take a next step. You've, you've gone a certain distance in your spiritual life. It's time to move on. It's time to keep moving. Make every effort to keep moving in your spiritual life. We don't do it alone. The Holy Spirit is working in us. God has provided for us the things that we need. And yet, it's very clear here, he says it twice, make every effort. God has given us everything we need for a godly life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gifts that you've given to us. We thank you for saving us, for giving us faith that is so precious. Lord, I pray that each one of us here will truly believe that we have what it takes. You have given us what we need, and we can remove sins from our lives, and do great things for you. Lord, guide us as we seek to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.